this morning, we are going to be in, uh, uh, in, in the book of 1 John. 1 John, uh, we're doing a kind of a standalone, one-off, uh, one-off sermon. Uh, we're allowing Justin uh, a full week to prepare for a series through the Gospel of John that he'll be starting next week. So we're, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, the next several months in the Gospel of John. I know Justin is, is as well. Uh, today, I wanted uh, us to, to, to be in, in 1 John, a, l- a tiny letter at the end of the New Testament, also written by the same person, the same person as the author of, of the Gospel of John. And you'll, you'll see uh, that there's actually going to be a lot of themes, a lot of words, a lot of metaphors and ideas that come up in 1 John that, are, that will also come up in the Gospel of John. But even more so, the reason why I wanted us to be in 1 John this morning is because there's, there's important themes uh, that are, are addressed that John, the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest, three closest friends that he, uh, during Jesus' time, uh, time on earth, uh, there's, there's important themes that, he, that John addresses in, in kind of the opening words of, of his letter that I think are important for us as a church family, uh, given our culture, given our, our time, and just given our own, all of us in this room, uh, if, we, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we're, we're, uh, we're living in the same fallen world with the same, what, what the Apostle Paul will call the, the flesh or the, the sin nature. We're living with all that, that, that uh, uh, we're fighting, we're, uh, we're up against the same reality. And so we need to, we need to hear these words, I think, in, in, in 1 John uh, this morning. So 1 John chapter 1, we're, we're going to start in verse 5, and then we're going to read the, through the end of chapter 1, and then also the first two verses of chapter Two. So first John one five through two two. <clears throat> let me let me pray for us and then we'll we'll jump in. Father, you reign. Uh, so would that truth that the darkness wants to hide, that the darkness wants to conceal, would that truth pervade, would that truth pierce, would that truth bring light uh, to the darkness in the world, to the darkness even within our own souls this morning? Would you, as we come to your word, or would you shape us and change us by the light of truth, uh, conform us into the image of, of Jesus? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, um, when I was in high school, uh, my sister, over, right over there, my older sister, she went to, she t- took a trip to, uh, to Washington, D.C. I think I might be getting the details of the story wrong, so don't go call me. Ask her about it later. But she, went, she took a trip to Washington, D.C. Is that right? You, you took a trip. Yeah, you went to Washington, D.C. And then, uh, and you, and she visited the museum, uh, the International Spy Museum. And she got me, I think at the gift score again. Don't, don't. She got me this, this shirt right here. Okay, and I, I don't have this shirt because it was when I was like early in high school, and so now it's all like ripped up. That's what happens to all my shirts. So it's all ripped up. But I found it's, it's for sale on eBay. If you want to go buy it. Okay. So and it says, <clears throat> it says, uh, deception is reality. Deception is reality. Remember, this is from the International Spy Museum. Okay, so and um, and that that phrase has always struck with me. It's kind of a cool little like uh, mind bending phrase, or you know whatever. Uh, uh, and and it struck me. It's stuck in the in the back of my mind. It always makes me think of those super super complicated spy movies when you can't uh, the, the ones that you can't follow the plot even because there's so many layers and double agents and, and lies upon lies. And then at the end there's like this cliffhanger, and you're like, what? It was all a lie this whole time, or it was all they were de- deceiving, or whatever. So. Uh, um, the secret organizations. But the point of this phrase is to suggest that for spies, it is to their advantage, it's to, to, to the advantage of a spy, to create such a thick cloud of deception and lies that its fog becomes so disorienting for their opponents. And uh, living in this world of, of lies and deception, it's like 
uh, living under a blanket, kind of. Have you ever, like, put a blanket over you and tried to walk around? On the one hand, you're totally covered. You're, you're protected or you're warm or whatever. You're covered, but you're completely vulnerable. You can't see anything, right? You never know in, this, in a world of lies, in a world where deception is reality, you never know who you can trust. You can never be completely honest. You can never uh, be completely honest with yourself. You can never be yourself. You can barely trust yourself, and you certainly can't be honest with yourself. That's the world of espionage. That's the world of spy movies and the FBI and, and the CIA and all that. But the truth of, of this, the truth is that though none of us are spies, this, unless this is all just deception, and deception is my reality, and you guys are all spies, um, the, tr the truth is that though none of us are spies, we all live in a world where deception has become our reality. And honestly, each one of us, I'll explain what I mean by that, but each one of us can step into this clouded, foggy world. We step into this world willingly. And this morning, in First in, in John chapter, chapter 1, verses 5 through, verse 5 through 2, 2, he identifies, John identifies for us a couple of the lies that we are so prone to tell ourselves. And in particular, John wants you and me, he wants us to see the dangerous lie of self-justification. Because the truth is that we are all master self-justifiers. If you're following along in the bulletin notes, that's the first, that's the first blank in, in your handout. We are all master self-justifiers. We seek to justify ourselves uh, uh, all the time, defend ourselves all the time, even if you're the kind of person, now there's a lot of people uh, that you may have, have met who like prize authenticity. Uh, even if you're the kind of person who thinks of yourself as being honest about your flaws and your failures, you think of yourself as authentic and real, the fact is we've all probably told ourselves a dozen self-justifying lies even before we got to church this morning. They, they run through our mind passively, subtly, without even thinking of it. Uh, why did you drive the speed that you drove this morning? Why did you think those thoughts about your spouse as she or he was getting ready? Why did you, uh, uh, why did, why did you have the, that, that conversation in your head about, about the, the, the bad interaction you had with your neighbor or your coworker? yesterday. We are all constantly rehearsing self-justifying lies in our minds all the time. But I want to ask a question. I want us to be, I want us to think about this question as we kind of, as we deal with the reality of self-deception and self-justification in, in the Bible this morning. I want, I want to ask you, what if the anxiety, what if the frustration, what if the bitterness that you experience, what if the shame or that nagging guilt, whatever your issue, whatever your problem is that perpetually surfaces in your life, what if that arises because you're such a good lawyer? Because you're so good at self-justification. What if all that angst, what if all that bitterness, what if all that shame are all the result of your attempt to justify and defend yourself? And what if all of those attempts to justify yourself, to defend yourself, what if all that's leading to your misery and my misery? Let me read, uh, let me read from 1 John. And here's the big idea. I, I like to give away my big ideas at the beginning of all, all my messages. Uh, here's the big idea as we read that I want us to keep, keep in mind. The gospel's light 
allows us to stare unblinkingly at the darkness of our own sin while also illuminating our path forward. The gospel's light allows us to stare unblinkingly at the darkness of our own sin while also illuminating our way forward. Okay, so these are the two things that we're going to see about the gospel's light here this morning. Okay, so follow along with me. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying, and we're not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And starting in chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. <clears throat> now, as we read that, maybe you've read that passage before, or, uh, um, uh, or, or maybe that's the first time you've ever seen that passage, but either way, this is a kind of a tricky passage to, for us as, to kind of wrap our minds around the, the flow of it. There's a lot of if, a lot of related kind of phrases, similar sounding phrases that all seem kind of unconnected and, and, and disorganized for us. As Americans, it feels like they're all just kind of a rambling, strung together passage. But there's actually an important structure as we try to you know, understand what this passage is saying. There's an important structure here to John's thought that we should be aware of. He starts, he starts verse 5. Look at verse 5. He gives us a, a foundational theological truth that God is light and there's not an ounce of darkness in him. And then Flowing from out of verse 5, there's, these, there's five if phrases, sentences that start with if. If this is true. You, you notice that. If this, and, and they, they, he alternates. He says between a negative statement and then a positive statement, and then a negative if statement. So if we say, uh, if, uh, the first one is if we, if, we, um, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness. That's a, that's a negative one. And then verse 7 is a positive one. If we walk in the light as he, is, as he himself is in the light. There's a positive one, the negative, back to a negative, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. That's a negative thing. And then verse 9, but if we confess our sin. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So, so we've got all these if statements. And there's really, uh, there's really two, uh, two points that he's trying to make in all this. Anybody ever been there where you're like, I, I don't even know what this is saying in the Bible because it's all just one rambling sentence, okay? That's what it felt like to me. So I had to, like, break it down for a dummy to, to understand what this pastor is trying to say. So there's two main points as I try to, uh, try to understand this. There's two main points. We're going to look at each of them. And then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, he, uh, he, um, he kind of wraps up the passage, puts a nice little bow on it, summarizes it for us, and, and leaves us with a couple takeaways. So how we're going to structure our time together, we're going to look at the two points that he makes in, in the, in the, in the, with five if statements, and then we're going to look at the conclusion. What are, what are the two takeaways that John wants us to take away from this passage? First point that we see this morning uh, is 
from verses 6 and 7, that life in the dark is incompatible with and cuts us off from the benefits of life and the light. Look at verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God, if we, if we, if we, uh, if we think to ourselves, we, me and God, we're good, if we, if we call ourselves a Christian, but then we live in the darkness. And what he means by what that phrase means is that if we consistently walk in darkness, if the, if the pattern and the shape and the direction of our lives is characterized and defined by darkness rather than light, if, we, if, if, that's, if, 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 there's, if, if that inconsistency is in our lives, then he says we're lying. Life in the dark is incompatible with life and the light. Now you might uh, hear that and maybe some warning bells are starting to go off in your head or light, you know, uh, red, flashing red lights are starting to go on your, off in your head. Well, um, I've, uh, you, you might be thinking of the, the dark things that you've done even in the last 24 hours. What does that mean? Does that mean I'm, does that mean I'm saved? Does that mean I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian? Well, let me, let me be clear that what John is, is saying is that if we, uh, what John is not saying is that if you call yourself a Christian, but you still find yourself stumbling, you still find your sin cropping up in your life in frustrating ways, he's, he's saying, welcome to the club. Like, that's, that's not new, that's not surprising to us, but that's also not what John is talking about. John it does not say that real followers of Jesus never sin, and if you do sin, that proves that you're not a real follower of, of Jesus. Instead, he's attacking a, an, a, a line of self-justification. And the first self-justifying lie that, we, that John is, is addressing is this, the lie that repentance is overrated and it's unnecessary. Repentance is overrated and un- unnecessary. We're not sure exactly what the people that John is writing about, exactly what their theology is or exactly what they were saying, but the, what they were saying is that basically that, that I can identify with the God of light, I can identify as, as, as a follower of Jesus but my life, there's no need for change in my life. I can continue to live in the exact same way as, as I've always been living. I can continue to, my life can continue to be shaped and patterned by darkness. And there's no, there's no need for change because repentance is overrated and unnecessary. The question is, what is our posture? Uh, the question that we have to ask as, as Christians when we see sin in our lives is what is our posture toward that sin? Because there's a huge difference between fighting against sin, the sin that we see in our lives, and viewing our sin as compatible with the Christian life. Uh, um, the, the kind of people that John is describing here are those who, whose direction of their life after claiming to be a follower of Jesus is the same as the direction of their life before following Jesus. But contrast this with the way that the Apostle Paul, another follower of Jesus, another apostle, um, describes his own experience with sin as a believer. He says this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I uh, do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is within me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. So do you, do you see how this is a totally radically different experience from the, the hypocritical, uh, incompatible life that, that John is describing? Uh, Paul is quick to say that the Christian life is a struggle against sin. It's a, it's a fight against sin. He's going to go on and says that it's, it's a war. He wages war against his flesh. 
but it's just that. It's a, it's a struggle, and there is, there is a war waging. So the point he's trying to make, and the point that I think we need to take seriously, uh, is that if we look at our life, we look at our behavior, our relationships, our conduct, the way that we treat people, the way that we speak, the way that we spend our money, the kinds of things that we, uh, that we take pleasure and joy in, if you look at that, and you take an honest inventory of yourself, and then you compare that to the life, to the lives of the non-Christians that you interact with, the life that you, you live before following Jesus, if you don't see much of a difference in that comparison, that should be a serious red flag to you. I'm, I'm convinced that there's folks who will go their whole lives calling themselves Christians, but their actually, actual day-to-day life is utterly incompatible with the light of the gospel. But it's not only is, is life in the dark incompatible with the light, we also said that it, the, that it cuts us off from the benefits from or the blessings of life in the light. So look back at verse 7. He says, here he gives his, his, uh, his, his, uh, uh, another if statement. This one's a positive one. And it's, uh, some translations bring this out. Some, some, some don't, don't do it. But these phrases are, both 6 and 7 are linked together with, with, the, with the word but. Uh, so if we say... Uh, we, uh, if we say that we, um, that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in the darkness, then we're lying. But, verse 7, but here's the alternate reality, the other way that we could live, the other way that we live. He says, if we do live with a, a life that's compatible with the light of the gospel, then what happens? If, we, if there is consistency in, in our, in what we, between what we say and the way we live, not to, per, not to perfection, uh, but in our struggle, <clears throat> If there is consistency, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In other words, when our life is marked by inconsistency between what we say and what we do, we're living under the curse of a lie. But the beauty is, when there is consistency, when there is congruity between what we say and what we do, we will experience the good design that we were created for. That's, that is fellowship with one another. Fellowship is just a religious-sounding word that means partnership or closeness or oneness with other people who are striving to follow Jesus, okay? So that's the first blessing. We, we have fellowship with one another, but then the sec- secondly, it says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. Now, what this verse is not teaching is that if we pull ourselves up by our boot, bootstraps, clean ourselves up, and start living right, then you'll finally be good enough uh, to, to enter the cool Christian club, and Jesus will finally forgive you for all your mistakes. Instead, he's saying that walking in the light is the natural result. It's the obvious sign that we do, in fact, have fellowship with others, and that we have, in fact, been restored with God through Jesus. So in contrast, when our lives are incompatible with the gospel, that proves that we really don't have any genuine closeness with either God or his people. So if you're here, you, you call yourself a, a, a Christian. My question is, what would an honest inventory of your life reveal? What would an honest inventory of your life reveal? And then secondly, like, do you see, have you seen, have you come to realize what your sin is costing you? Do you see that you've cut yourself off from one of, from two at least, of the most precious gifts of the gospel. I know that from my own experience, the seasons of life that are marked by the, the most inconsistency, the most hypocrisy, those are also the seasons of my life that are mo- marked by the most shame and the most loneliness. So 
from what joy is your self-justification robbing you of? We can put off the notion that we need to be good lawyers, that we need to justify ourselves, and instead we can walk humbly into the light of the gospel. Okay, so, um, so that's, that's the first point in, in verses 6 and 7. But then secondly, the second uh, uh, self-justifying, uh, our, the second point that he, that he wants us to see is that when we minimize the weight of sin, that keeps us tra- uh, trapped under its burdensome line. Minimizing the weight of sin keeps us trapped under its burdensome line. We see this in verses 8 and 10. So let, let me reread that for us. Uh, verse 8, and he's, he's starting at kind of a, 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 new, a, new, a new thought here in verse 8. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So more if statements here, the, and these kind of all tie together. Here, verse, verse 8 and 10, you'll notice uh, uh, the, 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 the structure of these verses is, forms kind of what's called a chiasm. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way of structuring a, a thought to kind of show your, the, the main idea of your thought. So verses 8 and 10 are very similar similar. Uh, Similar statements. There's significant differences, but they're similar. It says, verse 8, he says, we, if we say we have no sin. Okay, so there are some, apparently, that John is writing to that are claiming we have no sin. We'll talk about what that means. We're deceiving ourselves. But then verse 10 says something very similar. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and, and his word is not in us. But then the, the main point, right in the middle, verse 9, is sandwiched uh, right, right between. It's kind of the meat of the sandwich. He says, if... Instead of doing these two things, instead of denying our sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, so he starts off saying, if we say we have no sin. Now, I hear that and I think, like, who would ever say that? Like, I can't think of a, like, a human being who would ever say that, right? To say you have not sinned is to say, like, I've never had a sip of water. I've never had to relieve myself, right? But... Uh, that's, that's, but in reality, that's, that's not exactly what John's people, uh, the people that John is, is writing to, um, are, are actually saying. What they're saying is the, 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 the structure of this original phrase in the, in the original Greek has a different sense. What these, what these people are saying is, when they say, I have no sin, they're, what they're saying is, I don't bear the guilt of sin. I don't bear the, so they're saying something more like, my sin is not that big of a deal. If I, if I do sin, and that's a big if, if I do sin... It's not consequential. It doesn't affect anything. It's not hurting anyone. I shouldn't feel guilty about my sin. So in other words, they minimize the weight of their sin. So whereas the first group of people in in verses 6 and 7 were uh, such good lawyers that they could justify living totally different hypocritical lives, this group of people that he's talking about in verses 8 through 10, they take a different tactic of self-deception and self-justification. They say, yeah, I might sin, but... My sin shouldn't be held against me. There's such minor offenses, I don't, I don't have to feel guilty about them. So, uh, there's, uh, so and the, the second self-justifying, self-deception is, that we can often make is, my sin is in, insignificant, and it's inconsequential. But what does John say? It says, when we justify ourselves like this, he says, we are deceiving ourselves. So when we, every time we say, 
my sin's not hurting anyone, or no one will ever know, or I des- don't I deserve this? Like, it's not that big of a deal. I, I, I deserve this. What we're saying is we're deceiving ourselves. Deception has become our reality. But then in verse 10, he, sa- he goes a step further. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make our- him, not ourselves, but we make him out to be a liar. So the point is, by minimizing our sin, overlooking the vast scale of our depravity, is actually a direct assault on the holy character of God who, cre- who, who created us and then humbled himself to redeem us. What a foolish, foolish place to be. Uh, World War I uh, uh, is known for all the, the uh, is known for its like being one of the you know, bloodiest war in history up to that point and uh, millions and millions of people died in uh, in France on the on the on the on the front lines uh, in World War One, and over and over again, what one of the things that led to that was all those un, sort of unnecessary deaths is that generals and commanders and up you know were were unwilling and unable to adjust their strategies with the new technology that the 21st the 20th century had brought, and so uh, over and over again throughout the course of the war, uh, generals would. Uh, would make what's called direct frontal assaults against entrenched enemies. Uh, and you could do that, like in the American Civil War, you could maybe rush, you know, rush at, 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 a, at a port or at, a, at, at, enemy, at a, an enemy armor, army like that, that was in a good position. You could do that, and you could sometimes get lucky and break through their line and win. But with the invention of machine guns and tanks and, just, just, and then aircraft by the, end of the, by the end of the war, you couldn't do that. And so, but... But military commanders were unable to change their strategies with, uh, of, of attacking with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the new technology. So millions and millions of soldiers were gunned down and, and killed, as generals just said. If we just put a little bit more force, if we just put a little bit more gun po- manpower, if we just put a little bit more mil- military strength right at this, uh, at this entrenched enemy fort, maybe we can take it, maybe we can take it. But time and time again, over the course of the, over the course of the war, uh, uh, it proved to be it proved to, to fail every single time, um, and every time we rationalize, every time we justify, every time we defend ourselves, what we're doing is we are attacking, we are assaulting the character of an unassailable God, and as we do that, we are uh, we are unnecessarily making drastic fools of ourselves with drastic, deadly consequences. So as we rehearse the lies of, of self-justification and self-defense, what we're doing is something way more serious than what we, we often think about it. And what's interesting about World War I is that after World War I, uh, virtually everyone who had any stake in World War I, from Winston Churchill to, all the, to the German, uh, uh, whatever, Kaiser, and, and all the underlings uh, underneath and then they all wrote autobiographies uh, after World War I. That's kind of the famous thing between the two worlds, the two, two wars, is all these autobiographies start coming out about these commanders. And you know what none of them do? None of them ever say, I made some mistakes in this war and I probably should own up to them. No, they all are written at, at, in an attempt to justify themselves, defend themselves, say, it wasn't my fault, it was their fault, or if, uh, you know, if they had done differently, then, I, then, then the war would have turned out. Uh, uh, then the war would have turned out differently. We're, we're, we do this all the time. And I've been there. I've told myself the same illogical, destructive lie over and over again without even thinking. 
Because if we can convince ourselves that our sin really isn't that big of a deal, or it's really not our fault, or it's really not hurting anyone, that the Bible isn't really clear about this issue, or as clear as, uh, as, as, as other people make it out to be, if we, deserve, if we can make ourselves believe that we deserve this little bit of escape or pleasure, if we can get ourselves to believe the lie, then maybe we don't have to live with the consequences of our sin. We think we can escape the burden of sin, but really what we're doing is becoming further entangled in its web. But verse 9 offers us a different way forward, a different way for, forward. Rather than, uh, I'm going to skip a couple of these, uh, these passages, but uh, they're, they're in the, the bulletin notes, so I would encourage you to come, come read them afterward. But verse, verse 9 offers us a better, better way forward. Rather than deny our sin, the beautiful gospel way is to openly agree with God's assessment about the severity of our sin. Because there's no way to deny or to minimize or to bend the truth or to soften the blow about the reality of our sin. The, the case against us is undeniable. But look what verse 9 says. He, says. he says, but if we confess our sin, literally if we agree with our sin or if we say the same thing as God about our sin, so the exact opposite of denying, the exact opposite of self-justification, the exact opposite of keeping in the height, if we do the exact opposite, bring sin into the light, if we agree with God about our sin, what do we find? He is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is where the mystery of what God has done in Jesus almost becomes magical. Right? Minimizing our sin only further ensnares us. But owning our sin, freely acknowledging our flaws and our failures, agreeing with God from our hearts about our rebellious, crooked death, inducing bent, counterintuitively, it releases us from its burden. The more we bring sin into the light, the greater frequency we carry our flaws out into the open, the more we will discover in the gospel a beautiful Savior. And as we confess, he's faithful and just. He's reliable, though we are unreliable. He's committed, though we are rebellious. He's dependable time and time again. And he is just and right and good. And he's just in his justice, he forgives sinners like you and me. Okay, so then in, in, chapter, two, or in chapter 2, in the first couple of verses of chapter 2, John lands the plane for us. And uh, what he does is he kind of he comes back uh, in, in this conclusion of this opening section. He comes back and he ties up all the loose ends into a nice bow. And he goes back and says, okay, this is, these are, this is what this means. These are the takeaways uh, for us. And he tells us why he writes this section, why he writes this. So let's read uh, verses 1 and 2 of, of, chapter, of chapter 1 again. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. And anytime uh, some, an author of the scripture tells you why they're writing, that's, where we pay, that's when we pay attention. I'm writing these, thing, these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. So, did you see the two, two things, two reasons why John is writing this, why we're reading this this morning? Uh, two takeaways. He says, firstly, so that you may not sin. He says, in in case you haven't heard, he goes back to verse the, the, the point that he made in verse 7. In case you haven't heard, your life now is to be defined by a hatred of, a fight against sin, and a running away from sin that used to define you. So the first thing is, is that we run away from sin over and over again. So where have you lost the will to fight against your sin? 
What sins have you grown apathetic to? Where are you desensitized and numb over sin? John says, that's why I'm writing. Don't, don't fall into this trap that, that, your sin is, uh, that, your sin, that your sin can be compatible with following Jesus. Keep fighting. Don't stop the struggle. Now, maybe you're here and you're so stuck in sin that you don't know what even the next step is. You're drowning or you feel helpless. You can't imagine another kind of reality other than, than the one you're living in. Look at the promise that he makes, makes to us. The promise to be cleansed from it. That, that, that's what the gospel does. It cleanses us from every sin. That there is, the, the gospel offers us cleansing from every sin. There is no sin from which the gospel cannot cleanse us. So there is one, like, you can do this by the power of Jesus. You can do this. You can fight and live and press into a new kind of life, a new reality. But then, even more so, like, you can do this with others. You can do this with others. So that's, what, that's why he says, if we walk in this way, if we endeavor, if we struggle, we have fellowship with one another. So if that's you, you don't know where, what your next step is. You don't know where to begin. Like, reach out to someone. I, I re, re, come, come grab me after the service. The, uh, you come find one of the elders. Our pictures are up on the back wall. Justin, who's in the yellow shirt, playing, playing the, the guitar, crying for us earlier. Like, he, come find him, grab him. He would love to talk to you about that. Because, because and, I, and I say that, come, come find us, because that's, that's what we're all doing. We're all struggling, we're all finding, we're all trying to fight against, uh, fight in the same, uh, same battle alongside you. So come find us. Come find someone. But then the second takeaway is, the second takeaway is, if we do sin. So he says, I write this so that you may not sin, but if we do sin, that is when we do stumble, when we do lose the fight, John wants you to know that we have an advocate to the Father, an advocate from the Father. So we run from sin over and over again, but we also run toward our advocate over and over and over again. What's an advocate? We have a true defense attorney, a defense attorney better than the one that you provide for yourself, a better protector, the one who speaks up for you, the one who pleads your case, not because of works done by you, because, yeah, your sin really wasn't that bad, or you're really a good person deep down. No, you, your advocate speaks up for you based on the perfection and the beauty and the righteousness of, of Jesus who has died in our place. So do you, do you see the beauty of the good news of Jesus here? That as we relieve ourselves of the burden of self-justification and we daily agree with God about the severity of our sin, running over and over again to him, what we're doing is we're trading in our lame excuses for a true defender. We lay aside the weakness of our lies and our, uh, about our sin, and we gain instead the strength of a Messiah who stands up for us and who stands in our place. Look at how he describes our defender, our, our, our advocate. He says he's the righteous one. We've already seen that in verse 9. But then he's also the atoning sacrifice, or some translations say the, the propitiation. That is, his death pays the price, satisfies the cost, covers the price of the guilt of, of our sin. And he, by, and he does so by taking it onto himself. He does so by incurring the, the guilt onto himself. But then at the same time, at the same time as all of our guilt uh, is incurred onto Jesus, all of his perfection and all of his righteousness on the cross was credited to us. And so now we can 
run to our advocate. We can freely confess, and we will find him to be faithful and just, not because we're faithful and just, but because of the faithful righteousness of Jesus in our place. So we run from sin over and over again. We also run to the advocate over and over and over again. Remember John? Uh, maybe I didn't say this earlier, but John's an old man while he's writing this. Like He's, he's seasoned. He's made mistakes. He's seen, uh, he's seen others close to him make mistakes. He's, a, he's been around the block many times by the time he's writing this letter. You can imagine that as, as, Jesus is, or as John is writing about the advocate, he's writing, he's writing out of a life that's been marked by struggling and fighting and turning from sin, but then also running back and turning and running again over and over again to the Father. And that means the next time that we feel the urge to justify ourselves, to excuse our sin, to downplay, to mask with another lie, to mask with another minimizing of our sin, we can say, no, I'm, I'm a lousy lawyer. And I have a way better defender. I don't need to live under the cloud of self-deception. We can say to our Father, I have no excuse. I agree with you about the severity of my sin, and I need another defender outside myself. I need the perfection of Jesus credited to me. So let me rest in what his death, the death that I deserved, has accomplished for me. And we do this over and over again. We struggle, we fight, we pursue, we say no to sin. And then we stumble, and then we fall, and we confess, we bring our sin back into light, and we run to our advocate, and we find the assurance of what Jesus has done in our place, and we find the strength to keep going another, another step. Maybe it's five seconds, maybe it's five days, probably won't be five days. And then we stumble again, and then we confess, we bring it out into the light, and then we find, we find the assurance of what Jesus has done for us, and we draw strength from what he has accomplished for us, and we go back out and keep fighting and keep pressing and keep pressing and then we stumble and then we go back and we confess we agree with God about our sin we find the strength uh, 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 we find strength from what Jesus has done and then we uh, and we keep fighting we do this over and over that's the beautiful cycle of the gospel that we get to live in and we get to press into every day let me pray for us as, as we go in that in that cycle Father, would, uh, would you teach us to rest in the beauty of what you have done for us, and the mystery uh, of the gospel that says, that looks at self-justifying, self-deceived men and women broken down in our sand, mired in it, and that your gospel says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You look at us and you shine the light. You allow us to stare unblinkingly. You allow us to stare unflinchingly at who we are, at the reality of our sin. And then at the same time, that same beautiful, terrifying light shines a path forward for us. To teach us to run from sin. Teach us to run to our advocate over and over again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.